morning. So can you guys, can you guys see what's in here? Okay, it's hard, is it hard to see? If I come over here by Nate, maybe with the camera. Can you, does that help? Can you see what's in there? What if I, what if I shake it, shake it up a little bit? Does that help? No, it doesn't help. So I'm not surprised because I'm right here next to it. I don't see anything in there either. Uh, but something is in here, and somebody said air. This is actually a sample of air from my house. And, and there's something else in here, and you'll have to, and I know you can't see it because I frankly can't really see it, but you'll have to take my word for it. Or maybe you'll be able to ascend to the truth that it's in here based on your personal experience of the air in your house. Um, but there's dust in here. There's, there's dust in here. And I know, I know that it's, it's hard um, to see. And I'll be honest with you. The fact that I know that there's dust that is contaminating the air in my house doesn't make a bit of difference to me on most days. Most often, it's just out of sight. It's out of mind. Generally, I'm completely oblivious to it, even though like, I have come to know that it winds up settling on things, and for the lack of maybe a better word, it kind of trashes or it mars the appearance of what it covers. But most of the time... I simply just ignore it. And I'm not proud to say that the typical duration of my inattentiveness to its accumulation would make some of you compulsive cleaners (laughs) gag. It would make you absolutely gag. Some of you might even be twitching in your seats right now. But eventually, I become embarrassed or repulsed enough by the impact of it to be spurred to action. And eventually, I just realize, man... It's time to dust. It's time to dust. And by the way, I took that picture Friday night. And I think that I probably embarrassed myself enough now to maybe where Monday I'll actually dust the house. Look, I know this isn't a perfect analogy. But this morning, I want to talk to you about a type of spiritual dust, so to speak, that kind of trashes or mars or stains our lives when it's left to accumulate. And that's unconfessed sin. There's this spiritual dust in our lives that that is called unconfessed sin. And I believe that unconfessed sin, which is the sin that we've committed that we haven't specifically talked to God about, is a prevalent reality in our lives. It's a prevalent reality, though it's largely ignored. And that that spiritual dust or that unconfessed sin, it steals from us the freedom and the joy and the peace and the purpose that God would have for our lives. Most importantly, it, it steals the vibrancy of our relationship with God. And I say that out of personal experience, but also because there's some specific teaching in Scripture about the negative impact or the negative effects of unconfessed sin. And I would guess for many, if not most in here, it's time to dust. It's time to dust. I was trying to come up with an example of how not coming clean with God on our sin could impact our relationship with him and how it inflicts a toll on us. And I recall this incident of many years ago between my son Brett and I. Brett was about 11 years old. He called me at work one day after he got home from school, and he asked if he could go over to his friend Matthew's house to play and then stay through dinner. And of course, I asked, do you have any homework? To which he replied, yes, I actually have two chapters in my chapter book to read. 
And so I told him that he had permission to go to Matthew's and stay throughout dinner if he would read his two chapters first. And he, I got this enthusiastic acceptance from him. And so I get home from work, and of course he's gone. And I walk in the door, and there in the hallway, in his usual place, in his, is his backpack. And that wasn't that odd. But the backpack, it was all zippered up. And that struck me a little bit as odd. And so I unzipped it, and I looked in the backpack, and in amongst all the crumpled paper and folders and the half-eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwich was the chapter book. And I immediately think to myself, there is no way that that kid read that book. Because it's in the backpack, it's all zippered up, and one thing that I know about my son Brett, whenever he takes anything out, it never goes back to where it came from. That's just true. And I'm thinking, man, if he read that book, it would have been somewhere else in the house, and there probably would have been some papers and maybe the peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the floor when he pulled the book out. And so I call Matthew's house, and I ask to speak with Brett, and I said, you can't stay for dinner anymore, and I'm on my way to pick you up. Be outside, be ready to go, and I hung up on him. And so I get to the house, and I pick him up, and we drive back to my house in silence, and we walk in the door, and I stop at the backpack. And I say, what's wrong with this picture? And he gives me that, are you talking to Mandarin Chinese? I don't understand what you're saying kind of look. And I'm like, Brett, there is no way that you read that book before you went to Matthew's. Well, yes, yes I did, Dad. Really, Brett? Because one thing I know about you is that book was in the backpack all zippered up. And when you take anything out, you never put it back. Don't lie to me, Brett. And he looks me right in the eye, and he says, Dad, I read the book, and I just knew better. And so I send him up to his room, and I tell him, unless you're ready to come clean with me, no dinner, no PlayStation, no playing with toys, no talking to friends, no nothing. And he stomps up the steps, all self-righteous, clinging to his innocence. Brett, Brett had sinned. Not only was he disobedient to my command to read the two chapters before he went to Matthew's house, but then he doubled down and he sinned about it. Uh, he lied. He sinned uh, when he lied to me about doing it. And he wasn't willing to, the, to confess. And it turns out for quite a long time. And so not only was it detrimental to our relationship, but frankly, there was inflicted some heavy consequence that I know he came to feel was very burdensome. Can you see how we could find ourselves in that kind of a position with God where out of his great love, God commands us to do things, things that are in our best interest, and we don't do them. Those are called sins of omission, like, like me telling Brett to do his homework before he went to Matthew's, and he didn't. He omitted to follow my command. And God gives us a bunch of things that we should be doing that we don't. I'll, I'll just rattle off a couple of them. Just give some thought as to whether you can resonate with any of these and whether or not may, maybe you're in a position where, you know, I really, I haven't done that. Or at least to the extent God has asked. Failure to pray. To give God thanks always. To gather with the church regularly. God commands us to worship and to serve and to tithe and to meet the needs of the poor, to obey authority 
for some of you lead feet out there. Look at the speed limit signs when you're driving home. God gives us these things to do, and sometimes we don't do them. That's a sin of omission. But then there's also, out of his great love, God tells us there are some things we shouldn't do, but we do them anyway. It's like me telling Brett, hey, don't, don't lie to me, Brett. But he did anyway. These are sins of commission. Here's some things God tells us to do. The list is very long. This is a very short list. But maybe some of them will resonate with you. Things God tells us not to do. Lie. Even, even the little white ones. Cheat. Steal. Be angry. Be greedy. Be impatient. Impatient. Be a glutton. I hate that one. Drunkenness. Don't be drunk. God talks about us not living in sexual immorality. Lust and pornography and sex outside of marriage. God tells us not to gossip. And yet we find ourselves often where we do these things. That's the story of humanity and this dance that we all have with sin in our lives. And it takes this progressive toll on us when we allow it to linger, when we allow it to to pile up like the dust in our house does. And for whatever reason, out of willful stubbornness or distracted uh, inattentiveness, or maybe for some, maybe simply to this point in your spiritual journey, just just a lack of understanding, as a general rule, we largely ignore this critical and necessary process of consistent biblical confession in our lives. We just do. It's just true. And, and I got there's two very important things that, that we have to remember as we think about this. The first is we can't slip a sin by God. And the second is the impact of unconfessed sin does not diminish over time. We can't slip a sin by God and the effect, and I will talk about the effect of unconfessed sin, it doesn't diminish over time. Now, while I'll admit, I took a very good educated guess that Brett hadn't done his homework, given the evidence. Had he been a little more thoughtful, he could have taken the book out of the backpack. And he could have just laid it on the couch and maybe taken a couple of the, of the papers and the sandwich and dropped them on the floor. He would have slipped that by me. I never would have got it. But that doesn't work with God. We can't go hide in the closet. We can't wait until everybody's asleep. We can't be in our car alone and slip a sin past God. In fact, we can't even hide our own private thoughts from God. Because Scripture says God is everywhere all the time. And so he sees everything. And Scripture says God knows everything too. Scripture says he even knows our private thoughts. We simply can't slip a sin by God. And as well, time doesn't heal all wounds. And so the impact that unconfessed sin has, it does not diminish over time. Brett waited a very long time to come clean with me. And I'm sure he figured that he could just wait me out because probably in the past he was able to do that. But that doesn't fly with God. In fact, as we see in Scripture, it's just the opposite. If we harbor or if we cling to unconfessed sin in our lives, then the negative effect of that condition, it doesn't go away over time, And it doesn't just remain, but rather it even progresses. It it even gets worse. And I want to share with you some of the cost, 
some of the toll that we experience when we, when we tolerate unconfessed sin in our life. Because this room is full of unconfessed sin. The first thing that I want to say is that there is this progressive, debilitating effect on our very person when we harbor unconfessed sin. David would write this in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. According to David, unconfessed sin creates great misery for us. You can see that progressive nature of the debilitation as you read David's words. It, it gets worse. You probably know someone or you've, or that has either has or has had uh, some form of disease. That when it went unchecked or undetected at first, even though the physical effects may not have begun to appear on the outside, you just looked back now and you know that within their body, there was something that was progressively wasting away. You just know that that's true. We see that. David says then, even that this, this condition, it compels us to actually to groan. This is misery because of his unconfessed sin. And then he gives this word picture in verse 4, that his strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. That should resonate with us here in, in Texas. We get this clear picture of the progressive uh, drain on his strength due to the unconfessed sin. He tells us it. And, and it's, wor it's worth noting in other translations, this word that David used that we translate in the Bible we use here often as strength, oftentimes it's, it's translated as vitality. And that translation probably better helps us understand the toll of unconfessed sin isn't just a drain on our physical strength, but also on our emotional strength, on our relational strength, on our spiritual strength as well. Unconfessed sin, you, you have to get this, unconfessed sin is an insidious drain on the entirety of our being. And it may not feel manifested right now, but it's in there and it's happening when we have unconfessed sin. So that's the first thing. It's a heavy price. And then unconfessed sin, it also takes this toll by inviting discipline. Back to Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David said, when I refused to confess my sin, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. For our own good, God, he has no qualms about pressing down on us with heavy discipline to compel us to come clean with him. He's got no qualms about that at all. And, and I don't know exactly what those consequences of discipline will be. Uh, it's unique to each one of us and maybe to each manner of sin as God deems best. That would move us then to confess, to repent. But one thing is for sure, we can count on the discipline. And, and I don't know about you, but I would rather avoid discipline than willfully, knowingly just invite it. Brett, he invited discipline when he didn't come clean to me. And it wasn't pleasant for him. And he admitted later on that it would have been far better for him if he would have just come clean right away. And so we have to understand that unconfessed sin, it brings discipline from God, always. And that should be a pretty good motivator for us to actually confess. 
One more real cost I want to mention that comes with unconfessed sin, and there are surely others, but one more, is that it hinders our prayers. Unconfessed sin hinders our prayers. And one of the most normative ways that we get to experience our relationship with God is through our prayers. Not only do we get to talk to God, to express our love and appreciation for him, we get to present our very needs to God. And David, David writes this beautiful song of praise in Psalm 66. And David is rejoicing in God's faithfulness to hear and answer his prayers of need. But right in the midst of that rejoicing, David says profoundly in verse 18 of Psalm 66, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We have to know that when we have unconfessed sin harbored in our lives, that our prayer life with God is hindered. If you want to wonder why God isn't listening and God isn't answering your prayers and your needs, might it just be that you are harboring unconfessed sin in your life? It's a very heavy cost. Do you need to hear more bad news before you might be compelled to consider coming clean with God on unconfessed sin? I mean, do you need to hear more? I would think that that should be enough, that it would be enough to know that there is this real, progressive, debilitating effect on on every aspect of our being when we cling to unconfessed sin, and that God will inject unpleasant discipline in our life, and that our very prayers would be hindered, would that be enough just to compel you to confess? And I hope that it would. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what does confession look like? If you can get to the fact that, okay, um, uh, there may be the reality that I have unconfessed sin in my life, and those impacts are real, not because Dana said so, but because I just read them from God's word, that you might be compelled to actually lean into confession. And the first thing I want to do is just make sure we're all on the same page as to what confession is, as to what the Bible says confession is, because it may not be what you think. For many, when I've asked, what does it mean to you when you confess your sins to God? Very often, the answer comes in two primary forms. One is that confessing means that we tell God we're sorry for our sins. We tell him we're sorry for our sins. But the other definition I kind of hear often is that um, confession means that we're asking God to forgive us for our sins. And sometimes, people take both of those and they actually put them together and they say, well, confessing means that I tell God that I'm sorry for my sin, and I ask him to forgive me. And uh, in today's culture, while that answer may get you a nice participation trophy, that's, that's not what biblical confession is. The word confess, it actually means to agree with or to say the same thing. And so biblical confession, it is this statement of agreement with God about a behavior, but also an acknowledgement that we were disobedient to it. Biblical confession is this statement of agreement with God about a partic- what he says about a particular behavior, and then an acknowledgement that we were disobedient toward it. I'll give you an example of how that might go. In the very first sin that ever occurred, which we read about in, um, in Genesis chapter 3, if Adam was to confess to God for eating the apple from the tree that God said not to, it would not have sounded like this. God, I am sorry I ate the apple. Or, God, will you forgive me for eating the apple? 
or turning it up a notch. God, I'm sorry I gave you, I ate the apple, will you forgive me? Like, that would not have been what it would have looked like. There's no agreement in that. There's no acknowledgement in that. There's no accountability in that. But if we had heard Adam confess biblically, it might have sounded something like this. God, I agree that your instruction to me was that I was not to eat the apple in the middle of the garden, but I did. I was disobedient, and I did. It, it might sound something like that. Does that make sense? That's what biblical confession is. It's this wholehearted agreement about God's best plan or instruction around a certain behavior, which includes our thoughts or words. And as it relates to sin, it's also it includes this acknowledgement that we missed the mark, that we were disobedient. Are we kind of on the same page as to what biblical confession is? I hope that was clear because it makes a real difference as to whether when you actually confess something, whether you're actually confessing it. And that makes a big deal because that either resolves or doesn't resolve the effects of unconfessed sin in our life. And so here's some keys that I think will benefit, uh, that we'll benefit from as we approach dealing with unconfessed sin. And the first one is simply, we need to come to grip with the fact that we sin. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And you may sit there and think, well, the fact that we sin, it goes without saying, Dana. But I would argue that way too many people that say that they're followers of Jesus, they don't approach life that way. I mean, they see everybody else's sin, but them, no, they're, they're doing really good. And frankly, if everyone was deeply gripped with that truth, there wouldn't be such an epidemic. And, and I say there is an epidemic of unconfessed sin that holds back the kingdom of God as advancing in us individually as well as us in the church. Yeah, we have to come to grips with the fact that we sin. It's a, it's a big deal. And we got to remember, too, God doesn't have this grading system on sin as it relates to uh, certain sins being worse and really need us to confess, and other sins, well, you know, not so much. All sin is offensive to God, and all sin, if it's left to be unconfessed, it brings upon this heavy toll on us. It's just true. We have to come to grips with the fact that we sin because it opens us up to the opportunity there may be some unconfessed sin to deal with. So that's the first thing. Second thing, deal with confession as soon as you feel conviction by the Holy Spirit. Like, strike while the iron's hot. Don't even let the dust settle. Have you ever experienced that almost immediate feeling inside of you that you messed up when you messed up? You know, where, where the Holy Spirit just gives you the head slap or the flick on the ear, and you just say, oh, man, I just, I know, oh, I just did it. If you would practice on-the-spot confession, you might avoid dealing with the heavy burden that comes along with harboring unconfessed sin because then some minutes go by and some hours go by and you get distracted and before you know it it's out of out of sight out of mind one time i was merging into a lane of traffic and the guy that i was going to slip in front of when he saw my blinker go on he sped up so as not to let me in and as soon as i saw him start to accelerate i swerved my car to the right just for a second to make it look like i didn't see him and it got a reaction he slammed on his brakes. I'm sure it took a couple of seconds off of his life. And immediately, in the moment, I felt a little flick. But that wasn't even the worst of it. 
To make matters worse, alone and in the privacy of my own vehicle, I had cut loose with a little run of some coarse language. And I felt whack right up the top. In the moment, I very clearly sensed the Holy Spirit say, man, you goobered up. And has that ever happened to you? Have you ever sensed that? I felt convicted immediately of several sins, and I was able to, in that moment, I was able to confess or agree with God's take on patience and brotherly love and coarse language and to acknowledge to him that in like a nanosecond I had goobered all of those things up. And my confession in the moment, it was very timely. It was, it was actually authentic. And I think that honored God, at least as those sins went, And I think it may have kept me from experiencing some of the cost associated with the things that we don't confess. It doesn't always happen that way, but frankly, my experience has been the closer that my walk is with God, first off, the more obvious and immediate I sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm on my game, in the moment, I can actually confess that. And the dust never lands, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. In addition to on-the-spot confession, you should set aside, we should set aside some regular confession time. Prayerfully, you would do this daily. Honestly, you don't know, I don't know the half of our sin and what we need to confess. But if we would lean into some process, some regular time for confession, the Holy Spirit will take us where we need to go. On my good days, now, I try to take a run at it twice during my normal quiet time with God, which I have most mornings. But then as well, I've implemented this practice where when I'm ready to shut the light out at night for bed, I spend some time reflecting on the details of my day. Who I talk to, how I talk to them, how I went about being diligent at my work, how my drive time went, whether I recall any particularly frustrating moments that may have driven some self-talk, and so I've tried to make a practice of this because I know that I don't always sense God's, uh, the Holy Spirit's conviction right away all the time. And I become very aware of the effects of unconfessed sin. And so I'll spend some time a- at night, and oftentimes the Holy Spirit will bring something to my mind that I realize was counter to God's best plan for me. And I have the opportunity right then and there to deal with it. And, and so um, you should set aside regular time to partner with God and to ask about unconfessed sin. I make it a practice of praying Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 routinely when I'm on the hunt for unconfessed sin. David writes this. You see, there's a common thread with this whole sin and confession thing with David. David writes this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God wants us to be dust-free. God wants us to be dust-free, to not have anything that's impeding our relationship with him and not having anything that's wearing us down. And so if we would claim David's request to God to open our eyes to what we need to deal with, God will be faithful to answer. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, that is gold. You guys should have that one somewhere. That's gold. And then when you do confess, don't shortcut the details. Don't shortcut the details. We can't just go to God with this blanket confession. 
God, I, I agree that you tell me that, uh, that I shouldn't sin, and I agree that I sinned a lot yesterday, like a whole lot. I know we live in a microwave world, and we like to just take shortcuts, but this just doesn't fly. That's not biblical confession. God wants to hear some specifics, some details. He wants to know that we get it and why we get it, that he's told us something that's important to do or to not to do, that we understand that specifically, and then that we understand that we goobered it up. That creates some understanding, it builds understanding in us, but it also creates some personal accountability for the things that we do. And I think over time, if you find that you're constantly having to confess about the same thing and you're doing it that way, um, that'll make a difference in how often that you start to do those things because you're planting that truth in your mind and you're taking accountability for it. And so it's on you. I like to try to include a scripture reference about the behavior if I can. I can't always do that. Uh, I think God would smile at that. God, I agree with you that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, you say that we shouldn't use profane language. And I did. If you can use some scripture, that's, that's great. Here's the bottom line. Don't shortcut the details. And, and as I said, it doesn't really take that long, but just be specific about what God said about something and, how you, and that you goobered it up and you recognize it. And then once you confess it, forget it. Once you confess it, forget it. There's no need to rehash a specific sin once you confess it, unless you commit it again. Then it's like a whole brand new ball game. Once you de- but once you deal with some specific occurrence of sin with God, once you've confessed it, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, it says, when we confess our sins, God remembers them no more. That is really, really great news. So once you confess it, forget it. And then finally, when you're confessing to God, make a statement of repentance. When you go through the, comp- the confession process, make a statement of repentance. Repentance is this fancy word that just simply means a change of direction. And so close the loop with God by saying, now that I've confessed that the direction of my behavior that you directed was opposite of the, of the way that you were directing me, God, I desire to turn my direction back towards you. That's repentance. I just want to change direction. God, I admit, I, I agree, I was, you said, don't go this way, and I went this way, uh, but now I want to turn back towards you. That's repentance. So once you confess and make a statement of repentance, because if you don't tell God, my heart's desire is to turn back to you and follow you, then your statement of confession may simply be because it's just for some selfish motive and that you're still playing God. And so tell God, you're, you're God, I want to follow your way, repent. This act of confession, if it's done biblically and consistently, it does generate a freedom and a joy and a peace in life that God intends for us to have. We focused on the painful part of David's words on unconfessed sin in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. I mean, those were pretty painful, but listen to the whole passage around this. It actually starts in verse 1, and it goes through verse 5. And see if you can see the movement in David's emotions as you hear his word. See if you can feel the potential in this. Starting in verse 1. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. 
my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. That's good stuff right there. There is great potential in confession. And here's what I know. There is a pile of unconfessed sins in this room. And I know it can't all get resolved in the time that we have left. We're going to take communion together today as a, as a church. And I think it would honor God greatly if each of us would at least make a commitment and even maybe make a start towards the process of dealing with unconfessed sin in our lives as we prepare to celebrate Jesus' great sacrifice for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Maybe those list of words, the sins of omission or the sins of commission, maybe one of them jumped up and bit you. I bet as you're sitting here right now, you could think of at least one sin that's in your life that you haven't dealt with God about. And I think that in the moments that are to follow, as we get ready to share communion, if you would deal with God on that, if you would confess to God about that thing, um, God would be greatly pleased. And, and I hope that you would feel some, some release of burden. And then I would just urge you as you leave here that you would begin the process. You may have a lot of dust. I got a lot of dust to clean at my house. Um, but maybe you'll start the process. You'll start to remove the dust and then enter into this process where regularly and routinely you're going about confession. I give you permission, not that you need it, to actually ask your family members or your small group friends or some of your friends to hold you accountable to whether you're doing this regularly. Have some guts. Actually do that. On the night before Jesus would be crucified, he was having dinner with his closest friends, with the 12 disciples. And during the course of the dinner, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he asked God's blessing on the bread and then he, and then he broke the bread and he said to them, take and eat this bread for it is my body which will be broken for you. Remember me when you do this. And then later in the dinner he took a cup and he gave God thanks for it and he said to them, this cup, it represents the new covenant between God and his people. The symbol is my blood which will be shed and poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and the sins of many. Take this cup often, drink it, and remember me. And it is in this beautiful sacrament, this beautiful symbol and reminder that Jesus left them that we now have the opportunity to remember as we take the bread and we take the cup and we consume it into the very depths of who we are, uh, of Jesus' great love and great sacrifice for us. And so we're going to do that in a moment. I'm going I'm to give you some instructions, and then I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, the band's going to come back up, and the server's going to get in place. And then I would just encourage you, when you feel your heart is ready, to just to, to come up. We will have uh, servers across the front here. We will not have servers in the back risers this, uh, this Sunday, but there'll be servers all along the front. And you can just slide to your left in your, in your section and come down and then move across the front, look for an open server, and they will tear off a piece of bread and they'll hand it to you. 
and, uh, and then you'll take that bread and someone will present the cup to you and you'll, you'll dip it in the cup and you'll eat it. And remember that great sacrifice Jesus made. And then you can just continue back up uh, into, your, uh, into your section. I want to tell you that to, uh, on both sides in the very corners, if you need gluten-free elements, uh, we'll have gluten-free elements available to you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, we know, we know, Father, that too often we allow unconfessed sin to linger in our lives. And, and I hope, Father, it is my hope that we would all come to understand, because you say so in your word, there are ill effects to us and in our relationship with you when we allow unconfessed sin to linger and to exist in our lives. And it is my great hope for myself and my, for my friends here that we would take some steps, we would take some action to mitigate that damage and to restore relationship with you and to allow you to bless us with the abundance of life that you have come to offer us. So we pray, Father, that during this time now uh, that we get to spend uh, together, that you would move um, and you would do something uh, in this moment. We pray this with great hope and with great expectation in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>